hyperfixated. Every other week, we dive deep into the things we love and often obsess over. So grab your wiki articles, your caffeine beverage of choice, and scratch that brain itch with your hosts, Sean and Sergio. Werewolves to the left of me, zombies to the right. Here I am stuck in a village with you. Hello, everyone. My name is Sergio. And mine is Sean. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Hyperfixated. I think that each episode will subsequently become the greatest episode because we're only going to get better. Yeah, yeah. That's that's how life works. You never get worse at something. You only get better. The more you do something, the better you get. So the more we podcast, the more we talk about Resident Evil, the better we will get at these things. Yeah, it's the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour thing. Once we hit episode 10,001, you guys, oh my God, that's going to be like a game changer. You will be forced to tell your friends and family, have you listened to this podcast? They are literally masters of the craft. They are the true outliers. We're here to talk about Resident Evil Village to close out the Resident Evil arc. We've had a grand old time talking about zombies and goo monsters. And now we get to talk about werewolves and vampires. Resident Evil Village takes the series and lore to different directions. Interesting directions, I feel. Yeah, I would agree. Well, let's let's get right into it. How, what, we both finished. We have both finished the game. It's been out a little less than a month. We uh, I, I did a marathon session the past couple of days <laughs> to get ready for this podcast. Uh, and so but let me tell you, let me ask what you, what you think first. So I really enjoyed it. Like I had a lot of fun playing it. Uh, my friend Jeff Rauner, who reviewed the game for, I think, the Houston Chronicle, said that he thought it was more fun to play than seven. And I would agree with that 100 percent. I felt like seven was scarier overall and maybe that's just because the scare seemed a little closer to home at least early in the game whereas this right from the get-go you're up against werewolves and shit so you know it's not it's not quite the same as like rednecks like stealing you and like you know cutting off your hand and shit although there is some hand cutting in this game there's some definite anger toward hands there's there's hand violence for sure Yes, both perpetrated by and to. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I really enjoyed this game. If I hadn't, I wouldn't have been able to play for 10 hours. I finished the game more or less in nine and a half hours, but I don't know if that takes into account all the times that you die and have to go back to the last save point. If you'd asked me back in January, whenever I was playing Resident Evil 3 and like trying very hard to like finish the game in under a certain hour so I could get the platinum, I could have told you. My guess would be that it does take into account it might count against you i don't know if that's true for this game but i think in the past that's how the mechanic worked i definitely feel like i played a long time on sunday and on memorial day it's a good thing i had a three-day weekend otherwise i don't know if i would have had time to finish it i I enjoyed it so much that it it didn't feel like a burden it didn't feel like an obligation like obviously i wanted to finish the game in time to record the podcast and give my well-rounded thoughts on it but by no means uh would i have done it if uh i didn't enjoy the game i would have just chalked it up and said like you know what I, I got enough. I've played enough of the game. I can give you an opinion on it. Right. I really wanted to finish it. Yeah, absolutely. It's I, I finished a little before you, but that's basically what I did on Friday night. Like I'd been playing about an hour a night for the last week to get ready for the show. But then on Friday night, I was like, I'm just going for it. Like, I'm just get, I'm not getting up from this couch till I'm done. I think I finished in about eight and a half hours, but I don't know that I did as much exploring as you did. I think I'm going to try that on one of my next run throughs because I think there's a lot of stuff that I missed or um, could have 
haven't taken a closer look at, I guess, which is part of the fun of these games is uh, the rewards of playing it more than once. And they incentivize that, which is great by giving you like points for, you know, doing certain things like this isn't really spoilers, but there's a ball in the baby's playroom in that first scene, you know, when you're putting Rose to bed. Mm -hmm. And if you kick that ball into the next room, which I think is Ethan's study, you get a, a little trophy. It says goal. And like you get a certain number of points that you can spend towards like leveling up your health or getting a cool extra gun or unlocking character models or whatever. Just fun stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned Rose the baby. This game takes place three years and eight months after the events of Resident Evil 7. In that time, the marriage of Ethan and Mia has presumably uh, been flourished and <laughs> and you know and they've had a baby they've had a little baby little cute little little chunk named rose the game opens up in a very drastic fashion yeah well first you get this really cool like storybook sequence right which is completely unlike anything i've ever seen in one of these games before like with the the storybook and then it turns out it's mia reading it and then you put the baby to bed that remind the storybook really quick the storybook remind opening which is like very like said very unique to the series reminds me of the intro to resident evil 7 with the go tell aunt roadie song and the video like the cinematic video that comes with it which i also thought was pretty cool and unique to the series as well that's right that's a good point i hadn't thought about that but you're absolutely right yeah it's uh... I think it's great that they're still finding ways to sort of innovate or or just put an extra little twist, you know, on on the aesthetic of the game as it, you know, progresses through time. It's not getting it's trying not to be too stale. Uh there's a pretty big uh we want to say relatively spoiler free in the ep- in this episode. Something pretty big happens in the opening cinematic which sets the stage for the entire game. And the entire game is Ethan trying to find his daughter in this Eastern European village that has werewolves, vampires, and all manner of things that go bump in the night. Yes. Or bump in broad daylight. I mean, those werewolves are not waiting for nighttime. They are just out and about. High noon werewolves. High noon. One thing that early on in the game, there's a part when you first get into the village that is almost a beat for beat reenactment of that infamous chainsaw scene at the beginning of Resident Evil 4 with the giant guy with the huge like hammer. Yes. And at first you start freaking out. You have no idea. At least I did. I started freaking out not knowing like what to do. And then I remember like, oh, this is like a throwback to RE4. I just have to survive long enough. I just have to, I just have to survive long enough to, to make it essentially. Right. I think I freaked out too, but once I saw the big guy, I was like, okay, they're just fucking with me now. <laughs> I think that was whatever. I didn't see it as a throwback, although I think it absolutely is. Uh, I, I didn't recognize it as a throwback, I should say. I just saw it as like, oh, this is the part of a Resident Evil game where like, they give you a glimpse of what's to come and make you feel completely overwhelmed. So you're going to be terrified for the rest of the play because you don't know what else is going to jump out at you. As soon as I saw the big guy whose name is Urias, I I knew that, like I said, like this wasn't, this wasn't meant to, for me to defeat. I just knew, I just have to survive. I run around and I eventually trigger the cinematic and the, and the game progresses from there. Yeah. That's when you actually get, when the gates open, mm-hmm. right? And you yeah. get in and there's the old lady who kind of, you don't know what she, who she is. She kind of seems like a witch, sort of mysterious and sort of sets you on the path. And so that path involves uh, Lady Demiscrew? 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 We're going to call her Lady D because we don't want to spend an entire podcast sounding like assholes by mispronouncing her name. Yes. 
That includes Lady D, Donna Beneviento, and her sick ass dolls. <laughs> uh, Salvatore Moreau, which is his hunch, hunchback like creature man, and Heisenberg, who is like a hobo Magneto. That's exactly what I was thinking too. And of course, uh, uh, though I don't think this is spoiling too much, but these are the four mini bosses that you fight. You you also fight Urias, although he doesn't feel like um, like one of the the mini bosses. He just feels sort of like a like a like a half stage boss. That's a perfect way to put it. The big bad is actually uh, someone named Mother Miranda, which the four are quote unquote children of. The marketing leading up to the release of the game would have you think that Lady D is the big bad of the entire game when in fact she is the first mini boss that you take on yeah yeah it's true um she's kind of the darth maul uh, a little bit i mean at least darth maul came in the the climax of the film but in terms of like all the marketing is built around this character who's in the film for like maybe 10 minutes you know my god you are just coming hot with hot fire with the analogies <laughs> my man my dude thank you <laughs> But yeah, I the it's it's interesting. I mean, I think that visually she's the most striking of the mini bosses, right? Like she's the one that has because Hobo Magneto, I think, is a good character, but he doesn't, you know, look aesthetically, like you said, like and that at that sense of reason because Lady D went viral. Yeah, yeah, the nine foot tall uh, curvy lady went viral. Believe it or not, and and so I feel like they would have realized this. I mean, obviously, they realized it at a certain point, which is why they had they gave her the marketing. They care they gave that character the marketing push. But why didn't they program the game? Why didn't they write the game so that so that she shows up later on? I mean, my guess would be just from what I know about movie productions, like the 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 marketing team usually doesn't get their hands on the finished product till it's done, and then they do whatever they have to do to sell it. Um, which is how you end up with like movie trailers that have all the best jokes in them because marketing's like, how else are we going to get people here? You know. Still, though, if I'm writing this game, I and and I am coming up with character designs. As far as I'm sure, whoever. I'm sure that the writers of the game, the writers who actually wrote the story of the game at Capcom came up like, okay, this is Ladies D character and this is what she looks like. And I feel like they... Marketing would have been involved sooner. Or just someone would have snapped to the idea like, oh, this is going to be huge. Like this this character, this nine foot tall, Dita Von Teese looking <laughs> curvy... Vampire. Look, vi- yeah. Vampire seductress is probably going to go over like gangbusters... We should probably rearrange the story points, the plot points, so that she shows up later in the game. Yeah, I, that's a good point. I'm I'm wondering if it's a deliberate mislead because the, the game goes to some very strange places as it develops. Like the plot is definitely on brand for Resident Evil, just bonkersness. Um, so I'm wondering if it's sort of like they didn't want to show their hand, but at the same time, like as much fun as the rest of the game is, nothing strikes visually the way she does. So maybe it's just a, a mistake on their part. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it, it is interesting. I, I remember being surprised whenever like I texted you and I was like, I beat her. And you were like, I haven't gotten that far yet. And I was like, oh shit, spoiler. And you were like, I mean, you know, I knew they were going to throw hands at some point. Well, no, but I knew, well, I knew that she has three daughters herself that you have to take on before you get to her. And I had already taken on two or three of them. So I was like, I knew that, I knew that she was coming up relatively soon. 
Um, but yeah, I think you might be right in that they went ahead and threw that out first, marketed her heavily. And then so when you do that, you're like, holy shit, I thought that was going to be most of the game. Now I kind of have no idea what to expect. Yeah, absolutely. Which is sort of kind of meta considering the entire Resident Evil series. How so? Well, you almost kind of never know what to expect next. Oh, fair enough. Yes. Yeah. So really, they're they're embodying the meaning of their own franchise by uh, having us finish off Lady D so early in the story. So good on you, Capcom. Good on you, Capcom. Speaking of Lady D being a mini boss, there, like I, like I mentioned before, there are essentially four. Uh, what was your favorite? I mean, and I and I mean that like, what was your favorite, both mechanic wise and story wise, and are they the same? I think mechanic wise, I really enjoyed the Heisenberg fight a lot. Um, even though as a character, I wasn't super, I didn't dislike him. He just didn't leave as much of an impression uh, as some of the others. He, he, in a lot of ways, he seems the most normal of them, at least until the end. Um, so I, I think just as far as a battle goes, and I really did like the Lady D fight where you're on top of a castle and like, you know, you're shooting stuff out of the sky and it, it really feels like that moment is fulfilling the promise of like the medieval gothic you know vibe that they're selling the game on um maybe more so than any of the rest of the game um how about you i'd say my favorite was probably donna benevito and not only just the boss fight itself but everything that led up to it oh yeah i think that was my favorite aspect of the game and it's very similar to the um, it's very similar to the escape room portion of Resident Evil 7 that you play as a it's one of the tapes that you put in and it becomes a playable portion, which I always thought which was a I thought a gangbusters idea. I'm going to use gangbusters as many times as possible in this episode. That's two so far. Okay. If I can get five and I have to do it organically. But if okay. I can get five, I'll buy you a Coke. OK, I'll, I'll take I'll take you up on that. The portion leading up to that boss fight was very similar to that. And I I enjoyed it uh, mechanic-wise. But the actual like, storyline-wise, I really liked, like, so I, I liked the Lady D fight as well. Yeah. It, was, like, it, looked, it looked gorgeous. Like, like I said, you're fighting on a rooftop and there's there's these like vampire creatures flying around. Vampire like grackles i don't know what to call them, what to call them. yeah like like mini dragons or gargoyles or something i also i thought that her three daughters were really scary too like the way that the bugs would just sort of start to you know swarm in and you would get trapped and have to run away and like really that whole section in the castle was just like visually and story-wise um with bella daniela and cassandra like leading up to lady d was my favorite, you know, just sequence of the game because all three of them are really scary and all, all four of them are really scary and really hot. And like... Everyone, yeah, everyone was talking about Lady D. I was really digging the, the hot topic goth vibes that her daughters were putting down. Yeah, I was like, okay, you can kill me. This is, I, this is fine. Um, what a way to go. Yeah, exactly. What a ride. What a rush. Well, so what was but, your least favorite? Um, probably Moreau. I, mine's a hard Moreau as well. Yeah, I just just as far as that whole sequence and the, um, I think I got, I had the most trouble finishing that one with, you know, you have to time out the um, the bridges 
and also you know he'll, he's like hitting at certain points and if you fall in the water at all it's game over and yeah. then you also have to like find that that gear to like turn the the windmill or whatever it is um and then the fight itself just felt pretty by the numbers you know it's just this you know sort of floppy fish thing chasing you around in a labyrinth and not that hard to dispatch you know just kind of there he he seemed character wise the least developed of the of the four too like he leaves very little impression which i guess is sort of correct for that character because he's portrayed as very pathetic and sort of lesser and dumb and he's got a big inferiority complex so i guess it tracks it just it's not as much fun as the other sections of the game yeah i'd have to i've had to hard agree on that uh, i feel like yeah the actual um confrontation with moreau is pretty basic i think the the hardest part is actually like you like you said navigating the um underwater or not underwater but like it's there are rooftops that that you're supposed to be walking around and, and the bridges that you're supposed to be crossing uh, and avoiding him as he jumps around as a fish as a mutated yeah. fish and there are those colored bridges that will only stay up first and you have to hit the switches in the right order to get a, across and i enjoyed that i probably died the most in that sequence yeah but it too. was yeah but it was only because it, it's almost like a trial and error type thing like it's almost like you're expected to die a few times because you know instinct would say i'm going to i want to run i want to get through this as fast as i can but you do have to wait certain you have to wait for certain jumps that that speaking of throwbacks to Resident Evil 4, I got big Resident Evil 4 throwbacks in that sequence uh, with the lake monster, mm -hmm. you know, that's dragging your boat and you have to spear it. Oh, um, yeah. Which was the, yeah, when I first played Resident Evil 4, I got stuck in that lake monster sequence for a long time. Um, so much so that I had to have somebody else like show me how to beat it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the Moreau part was kind of meh. Uh, speaking of someone that isn't meh, let's talk about the Duke. Let's talk about the kick-ass Duke. Yeah. So the Duke is the in-game vendor from whom you can buy weapons upgrades and, you know, bigger storage cases so you can lug around all your shit. And he even will cook food for you that will give you, like, permanent, like, bonuses to your health mm -hmm. and stuff. I... I didn't do a very good job with that stuff, but since I was playing on casual this time, I wasn't super worried about it, you know? Um, but uh, I thought that was a neat mechanic that, you know, that he would do all those things. And he's sort of a, he's a presence you don't really know what to make of, you know, like uh, I, I'm trying to remember what it felt like to see the, the, the merchant in Resident Evil 4 for the first time, like whether, I was afraid of him or just confused. I definitely was creeped out by the Duke. I'm pretty sure I tried to fire on the merchant the first time I saw him <laughs> in Resident Evil 4. Anytime I did see the merchant in Resident Evil 4, I, one, was relieved because I could buy any number of items that I needed. And two, I was terrified because I knew that I was probably in for some shit, like, right, so, you know, subsequently after I visit him. Uh, although, as far as his presence in the game, they treat it differently as in he's like, he's usually, he's, you can go back to him. He's in the same location. Yes. He, he sometimes shows up in other locations, but you'll always find him in the locations you found him before. Exactly. Like, so when, when you're in the village, he will be at the same spot in the village. And so you can go back to him and at certain points and upgrade or sell and do all that. 
and he's also got a type he always has a typewriter so you can always save your game too which he's is, always got a typewriter so he's the he's the Hemingway of uh, Mother Miranda's village I I love the I don't know if it's an implicit uh, confirmation but I love the idea that even in this cursed village in Eastern Europe the tendrils of capitalism <laughs> have somehow wormed their way into our lives. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful uh, thing. So he, the Duke is, the Duke is a, uh, a mysterious presence. He's a not entirely comforting. I thought that was a really neat thing. Like I was never really sure what his game was uh, for most of the length of the game. Um, and I, at the end, I'm still not entirely sure, but like, I at least feel like I have a better idea of, you know, than I had about in Resident Evil 4, because that guy never told me shit, except to ask what I was buying and what I was selling. He re The Duke references the merchant from Resident Evil 4. He asks you, oh, he, he has certain, um, I guess, canned responses to when you open up his shop. And one of them is, what are you buying? That's something an old friend of mine, you know, would say. Right. And so I thought that was kind of cool how like maybe they're part of this merchants guild <laughs> that, you know, that helps people fight their way through cursed villages. Yeah, I checks out. I mean, based on where the, the, the merchants actually appear, you know, because as far as I know, there aren't any merchants in the other games. I haven't played six, but um, there's not one in five, there's not one in three, two, or one, or zero. So, yeah, it, it checks out. There's a European guild of merchants that specifically caters to the forces of good. Well, it's like, look, they say, like, look, there's some, there's some terrible shit going on in some of these villages. We don't overtly want to step in that's not our place. <laughs> but should someone do so, we will do our best to to abet them for a price. We're not going to uh, this is going to be free. Things don't come free. Things aren't cheap. The the price of everything is skyrocketing. However, salaries are staying the same. <laughs> in the village they're stagnating. Mother Miranda hasn't given anybody a raise in 50 years. But yet 50 years ago, I could have bought a loaf of bread for five cents and now it's five bucks. How's that fair? Yeah, it's not. But it's beautiful. It's a beautiful yeah, thing. It's beautiful. Though. Let's not question its beauty. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he's and I think his demeanor and his personality are a lot more affable than the merchants was. I mean, the, the, the merchants really didn't have you didn't really interact with him save for the business transactions you were you were take that were taking part they were taking place whereas the duke would actually give advice he would give you in-game advice as far as what to do or where to go yeah so which of course helps the tension of the game because you're like is he actually helping me or is he guiding me towards some nefarious end because one of the things i really liked about uh eight is that you get the sense immediately because of that drastic opening that Ethan is part of something bigger than he understands and everybody knows more about it than him and nobody's ready to tell him about it. Um, and which we can get to that when we get into spoilers, but um, 
But I think that that really adds to like the mystery of the game because I think it's the first time in a Resident Evil game I was genuinely like, what the hell's going on here? Like, not not in terms of it's incomprehensible, but there's a mystery to be solved, and I wanna I want I wanna know the answers rather than just I wanna kill the giant monster at the end. Well, you bring up spoilers. Let's go ahead and dive into some spoilers. Uh, for those of you who do not want to have the game spoiled for you, uh, after we're done recording and I'm chopping it up, I will go in and let you know exactly for how long we recorded for. And so you can fast forward that amount of time to avoid uh, any spoilers. So starting at this point, it will. this is no longer a spoiler-free zone. We are in spoiler country now, friends. Sergio from the future here. Just want to let you know that as soon as the music starts, fast forward seven minutes if you want to avoid all Resident Evil Village spoilers. Seven minutes forward once the music starts and you will be good to go. Thanks a lot for listening. Mia dies at the beginning of the game. <laughs> uh, yeah, apparently. Yeah. Um, and she's murdered by a team of commandos led by hero of the original Resident Evil, Chris Redfield. We're in this picturesque Winters household. They've laid their baby Rose to sleep for the evening. And they got some wine. They, there might be some lovemaking going on later on in the evening. When a hail of bullets sh- crashes through the window, Mia's shot dead. Just they take, they take, they take the baby. Yeah. Chris- <laughs> Just straight up take it. Take her, not it. Chris takes Rose, and the whole time Ethan's like, Chris, what are you doing? And basically, Chris's like, You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You don't know what the fuck is going on. Shut the fuck Which up. Is, like, when the entire drama of your story hangs on a character just not stopping to explain what they're doing, and he's on the same side as another character, like that's look, I loved the game, but that is some silly storytelling. That's yeah, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. And uh so basically, so they, they take Ethan too. They they apprehend them, they put them both in a couple of um, I don't know, vans, yeah. Like armored trucks. Right. They're taking them somewhere. Um and then the van's wreck, or at least the one Ethan's end does. Well, it's revealed later on in the game that Mer- Mother Miranda was actually, had, had somehow gained the power to of mimicry and was actually Mia in that scene. Right. She had literally, I'm trying to think of a, an equivalent in pop culture. Oh, I guess like the spider clone saga, where like supposedly we'd been following the wrong Peter Parker for the last like, 20 years or something because Ben Riley had unknowingly, except in this case, uh, Mother Miranda has knowingly infiltrated um, the Winters household. And it's kind of neat when you replay the game because you see like why she would be reading that fucked up story to the kid at the beginning. You understand why Mia is cooking a local dish, uh, you know, to the to to whatever fake Sylvania or whatever country they're in, you know. Um, Going back, like there, there's some neat evidence planted early. You know, I, I will give them credit for that. So also another big reveal in the game is that Ethan actually died 
in Resident Evil 7. Like at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, he was killed by Jack Baker when he first gets into the house to try to save his wife and was reanimated. Was reconstituted. By the black mold. Whatever the name for the, the fungus is in the game. Yeah, he's basically rebuilt out of that. Um, sort of like Swamp Thing, actually. Like where you find out that Alec Holland actually did die. But there are these certain plants, these tubers, I think, that um, actually absorb the memories of the things they eat. So he's basically, he finds out he's just a clump of plants that dreamt it was a man at one point. So Alec is actually dead and gone and has been for years, but Swamp Thing, you know, thinks he's Alec. So you've got this lump of shrooms uh, who dreams he's a man and somehow like has a marriage and, and is able to impregnate a woman. Um, yeah, it's the other like big, like the reason that Mother Miranda wants Rose is because she's powerful in some way. She wants, and so she wants to use that power to, I guess, bring back her own daughter who died during the last global pandemic, the Spanish influ the Spanish flu of 1919. Very timely. And somehow using Rose's power can do that. At one point in the game, you see the Umbrella Corporation logo. Yes. And you think like, oh, that, that they're, we're in for some shit. Like, and there is a connection, but it's more, it's more subtle and I think it works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's when you get into Miranda's laboratory and start seeing all of her notes and there's a note from like the co-founder or the founder of the Umbrella Corporation. Yeah, you find yeah, you find the note from Oswald Spencer. Basically saying, hey, thanks for the knowledge, but you know, I want to go a different way than you are. Like you're focused on this one kid, but like I'm thinking globally. I liked that better than finding out like, I mean, the only other way you could go with that is like, it's like this ancient, you know, like Templars organization, like an Assassin's Creed or whatever, where, um, you know, the Umbrella Corporation has been trying to wipe out humanity since the 1400s and, or whatever. And I like this better. I like the idea that like, it's a tangent on what we know, you know, instead of trying to and it, it accounts for how different the enemy types are in the game too. So it's not just the undead, you're dealing with lichens and vampires and you know, a whole different breed of monster, allowing the world to grow outwards in new ways that I think keeps the series fresh, but still ties it to the franchise as we know it. No, yeah, for sure. I think it's really interesting how like these sort of ran on parallel tracks where Mother Miranda is trying to figure something out. She has Spencer as somewhat of a, a protege of sorts. And like you said, like he's thinking global where she is thinking something like very personalized. That lines up with the stories of Resident Evil 7 and 8, which are, even though, you know, all the Resident Evil games are basically one player games where you'll have a companion at some points and other points not. Um, they're, they're focused bigger in terms of like, you know, pandemic of, of, of society of entire cities or, and even though you're dealing with a village, um, the concern in Resident Evil 7, you know, is your wife. And then in eight, it's your child. Um, so it, it's a much more intimate 
you know, story. So having a villain that's just as intimate rather than this big faceless, you know, evil organization actually makes a lot of sense. We're going to go ahead and exit the spoiler zone now. So we want to accommodate that. Let's go back into the non-spoiler territory. Let's finish off the arc with one final question. Having completed Resident Evil 8 Village, what do you think Resident Evil 9 looks like um, based on a post-credit scene, it, there's a very obvious direction that it could go. Do you think it goes in that direction or do you think it goes somewhere different? So that that post-credit scene, without getting too deep into it, implies a pretty hefty time jump, right? Um, which means that there is a chunk of time unaccounted for between the end of eight and the post-credit scene. There's a lot of room to keep telling stories in that universe um, while the world catches up to that time jump. I don't, I don't know. Like, it, what's interesting is that I don't, I don't know what the impetus for, you know, that character's journey would be. So that it, it, you know, they haven't told us yet. That character's kind of a blank slate right now. So they could go any number of directions with it, and that seems to be where they're indicating right you know uh, so i don't know what do you what do you think i really don't know what to think even with the way that the post credit scene played out like i said there's a very very obvious direction they could take the they could take the next game it still feels as if this sort of wraps up a lot of what we've been going through gameplay wise lore wise because Eight feels a lot, it feels like a very satisfying amalgam of the survival horror trilogy, the action trilogy, and seven. It it yeah. being a direct sequel to seven, it has a lot of it shares it shares its you know its DNA, yeah. But you've got survival horror aspects uh much more in line with the the first games, whereas there's still an aspect of it in four, but it's, you know, it's, it's a shooter. It's a gun game. And there's a lot of that aspect. There's a lot of that in eight as well. I feel like it's an almost perfect amalgam of, of the entire series up to this point. And as a result, it feels a very, there's a, to me, there's a lot of closure and it feels like they could take resident evil nine. I mean, hell they could start off fresh yeah, just spin it in a completely different direction. Um, and honestly, I'd be okay with that. Like, as long as the games are fun, you know, I, I'm not, I, I, there are certain protagonists in the series that I'm more attached to than others. Like, um, I'm really attached to Jill Valentine and Leon Kennedy in particular. Like, those are my two favorites. Um, so I wouldn't mind seeing more of them, assuming that I haven't played all of the side games or Resident Evil 6, so I'm not sure if they're both still alive, but um, I wouldn't mind doubling back to them. Also, um, you know, it, it seemed like there was definitely some setup for, uh, so there's something Chris Redfield says um, at the end of the game that would sort of indicate that his story isn't actually finished, even though uh, I think the game was sort of pitched as this will finish Chris's story. I feel like the door is wide open to continue um, 
And that post-credit scene makes me think that like, at least as a character, maybe not a playable character, he still has a future with this franchise that they're not done with. Is this an insane idea? Let me hit you with it. So okay. you have, you know, Resident Evil survival horror games. You're sort of detached from the character. Like as, as much as you grew to love someone like Chris Redfield or Jill Valentine, you know, when you first meet them, they're... Kind of blank slates, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're a star soldier uh, investigating something. Right. And then you have... The, the you have the shooter style games of Resident Evil 4, 5, and 6. You have these intimate games that sort of combine the previous two aspects, but you're more invested in the characters because, like you said before, you know, seven, you're you're searching for your wife. Eight, you're searching for your daughter. Is it crazy to think that we would get a Resident Evil game every year in a different style? As long as they're fun to play, I would... I would be fine with that. I mean, they put out like for a long time, you'd get an Assassin's Creed game almost every year. And honestly, I know people got tired of those after a while, but honestly, you know, I played pretty much all of them and enjoyed the fuck out of them. So still, though, I mean, but you would only get if you're just if, if you're, you're only as, interested if, in one type. Exactly. You're only going to get it, you know, every couple, every three years. I, I mean, as long as the games were fun to play and like could could stay fresh, um, you know, as long as they, you know, live fresh, like Subway suggests, um, then I would, I would love that. So there was a four-year gap between seven and eight, which is, you know, when you think about the early games in the franchise, they were coming out, you know, I think the first three were out within three years of, you know. Yep. So it, these games, as they get more complex, as they get more beautiful, as they get, you know, they take longer to make. So if you've got different teams kind of focused on different aspects of the fan base, um, I, I would be happy not to have to wait four years for the next installment, you know, whatever it looks like. And that's the thing too, is that if you have different teams working on different style games, they can hone their focus on, okay, this is a survival horror game. How do we make a great survival horror game? Or this is a shooter. Like, how do we make a great shooter? Rather than, okay, how do we make a game that is survival horror and a shooter and also has protagonists that we care about? Right, yeah. Um, yeah, instead of doing the four-quadrant Resident Evil, um, doing the, yeah, focusing in so that the the, the hardcore fans of each branch kind of get exactly what they want. I'd, I'd love that. So not, that's too insane of, of an idea. No, no. You know, I, I wonder how much these games cost versus, I mean, I, I'm sure they sell like millions and millions of copies. Well, Resident Evil 8, I believe at the last headline I saw is that it sold over 4 million copies already. And that's in less than a month of release. And for a game that that's going to be relatively short too, because this isn't like a 60 hour game. This is, I mean, you could probably get 60 hours out of it in replay, but like if you're just somebody who likes to play through the story and you're done, like it's a 10 hour game, you know? So um, the fact that people show up for that, knowing it's short is also speaks to how beloved the franchise is and what a recognizable brand it is. Let's touch on that really quick before we finish up. The base game is $60. You get about 10 hours of playtime for the first run. Let's say, I mean, how much is a movie ticket nowadays? About 15 bucks, right? Yep. And your movie's about two and a half hours. Right. So if you were to average all that out, that's about $60 worth of entertainment. 
to watch four movies and get 10 hours of entertainment would be about 60 bucks. And that's not counting like if you want popcorn, if you want something to eat while you're at the movie, like if you're not the only one going to the movie, you know, so like it's, it really, it, I, I think we've got a warped idea in the age of streaming of how much things should cost. And how much, how long they should be. And that's that's a point I, I never agree with that. It's with the idea of like, oh, this game is too short. I mean, if the game is, two or three hours if you can beat it in one sitting like you know if you can beat it you know after you get home from work and before you go to bed on one night yeah maybe it's not worth 60 bucks but if you're getting at least you know 10 to 12 hours of entertainment out of it i feel 60 bucks is pretty fair i i agree i would compare it to going to the movie theater to catch a flick 100 percent agree there you go that's why we're best friends and why we started a podcast together because we always agree with each other on everything we have never had an argument i i would say i didn't like that and you would say i didn't like it either <laughs> and then we hook arms and go to the the soda jerk <laughs> skip down the sidewalk and get ourselves a sarsaparilla well thank you so much for joining us once again we will be back in just two short weeks and we will be discussing the Alien movies. Yes! We will start off with Prometheus, move on to Alien Covenant, and also discuss the original Alien movie from 1979, Ridley Scott's Library of Congress certified... Masterpiece. And we are so excited. We It's my favorite movie. It's Sean's favorite movie. I I love the movies. I like. We are reading comic books. We are reading novels. We are uh, diving into the tabletop role-playing game. We are playing Alien Isolation, the video game that was released a couple years back. We are definitely in an alien mindset, the same way we were in a Resident Evil mindset. And that's how our minds work. And if you want to join us for the ride, by all means, there's plenty of room on our bus. Yes, please join us. Thank you so much again for listening, guys. My name is Sergio. My name is Sean. Take care of others and yourself. Keep up the chatter with your favorite fleeting fanatics by following us on Twitter at HyperFixatedPod. And for a list of all social media links, check out the show notes or visit Linktree forward slash HyperFixated. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes, follow on Spotify, or find us anywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you really like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, don't forget to tell all your coworkers, friends, and family to listen especially grandmas. We love grandmas. We just think they're neat. YouTube was around back then, right? So it was around, but I wasn't using it because, I don't know, I'm stupid. But yeah. (laughs) I don't use YouTube because I'm stupid. The Sean Apple story. (laughs)